the White House, the Congress, the prospect of change. The importance of each and every vote. Protect and to preserve our voting system. From the ACLU, this is At the Polls, a special mini-series on, you guessed it, voting. I'm Molly McGrath, a voting rights lawyer and organizer, and your host for this series. The right to vote of all of our young people belongs to you. The machinery of democracy should work for everyone everywhere. This week, we'll be answering the question, how will the courts influence the 2020 election? And stay tuned for the end of the episode, where we'll be answering questions from you, our listeners. By now, if there's one thing we know about the 2020 election, it's that things aren't shall we say, normal. Coronavirus concerns have created a blizzard of absentee ballot requests. Requests for ballots are off the charts because of the COVID safety concerns. On this podcast, we've been talking about the ways that holding an election during the middle of a pandemic has presented new challenges for our institutions. The news media and how they might not be able to declare a winner on election night. How our vote by mail system has put a spotlight on the role of the post office. Now it's time to talk about our courts and how we're fighting back and what we can do as voters to stand up to the unprecedented attacks on voting and our legal system. Mail-in voting, uh, I don't trust the people that are calling for it, demanding it. It lends itself to corruption. In the mass mail-in system that there is fraud. This methodology, which as a matter of logic is very open to fraud and coercion, is reckless and dangerous. And the people are playing with fire. This scam that the Democrats are pulling, it's a scam. The scam will be before the United States Supreme Court. On anything related to lawsuits and voting rights, there's no one we trust more than Dale Ho, head of ACLU's Voting Rights Project, who joins us today. Hey, Dale, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Molly. It's a pleasure. Ahead of this year's election, we have seen an unprecedented amount of litigation. Let's talk a little bit about some of this pre-election litigation. Can you share with us a little bit about what you all have been fighting in court prior to this election and some of these new changes in law? Yes, it's been a busy year, to say the least. Election years are always busy. We might normally, in a given election year, in the spring and summer, file three to six new cases that we're trying to get resolved very quickly before the election, but the pandemic has just scrambled everything. There are 16 states, for example, that normally require an excuse to vote absentee. And of those 16, I think 11 are permitting every eligible voter to vote by mail due to the pandemic. And that includes states across the ideological spectrum, right? So states like Connecticut, New York, and Massachusetts, which normally require an excuse, have finally gotten off their duffs to do something about this. So I think that's a, a common, almost a misconception, right, that these that a lot of these policies don't enjoy bipartisan support. And, you know, we see a few tweets from the president attacking vote by mail. But as you pointed out, there's actually despite the fact that he votes by mail. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the only evidence that he's ever voted in person, I think, is like that access Hollywood Billy Bush tape with him kind of like going to the wrong polling place three or four different times. Oh, why do I have to go to a different place? Actually? Yeah. yeah. Where do we go? To 520. 520 Park Avenue. Okay, yes. I like that location better. It's a richer location. They don't have it here either. You believe this? You have my name here? I'm going to fill out the absentee ballot. And I've just voted. And like, I think casting a provisional ballot at the end of it, which, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, it's the hypocrisy 
never ceases to amaze. This cycle, the Republican National Committee at the direction of President Trump has amassed a $20 million war chest for voting rights litigation across the country. In every case, they are trying to suppress the vote. And so I have to ask kind of the 2020 evergreen question, right? Is this normal? You've been litigating through so many election cycles. Is this normal to have so much intervention by a political party in your cases? No, we don't normally litigate against the RNC. We normally litigate against the states. Occasionally, the legislatures get involved. This is the first time we've seen the RNC in any of our cases. And, you know, what I would ask them is, you know, is 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 this helping their voters? Right? Like, we're trying to make sure that everyone can vote safely. That includes RNC members and Republican supporting voters. We don't think that this election should be decided by who can don enough PPE to get to the polls safely or who is willing to risk their health and safety in order to vote. It just doesn't make sense in ordinary times and right now during the pandemic when ordinary things in our lives that used to be The simplest things, right? Taking your kids to school, going to the grocery store have become so challenging. Why people would want to leave these kinds of barriers in place for voting is just beyond me. Dale, you're going to make me cry again. As it always does, the ACLU's litigation has one goal, to make sure every eligible voter can cast their ballot and that that ballot is counted. Dale, can you tell us more about some of this litigation that requires witness signatures and the impact of some of that litigation? So we've dealt with the RNC in, I think, Minnesota, Rhode Island, Ohio, South Carolina, Virginia, North Carolina. All of those cases have been about um, witness signature requirements, something that only 12 states require, but in the context of the pandemic, particularly for people who have pre-existing conditions and or live at home by themselves and are trying to maintain social distancing, that is a much taller ask than it would be under normal circumstances. So far, somewhere between 1% and 2% of all ballots in North Carolina have been rejected because of a lack of a witness signature or complete witness information. That may not sound like a lot, but this year, North Carolina has over 1 million, I think about 1 million absentee ballots requested. And we're still more than a month before the election. It wouldn't surprise me if that number doubled. So if you're talking 1% to 2% of 2 million absentee ballots, that starts to get to be a pretty significant number of ballots cast. The Virginia State Board of Elections, we had to sue them as well. And they similarly said, we don't even check these witness signatures against anything because there's nothing to check them against. It's an, an illegible scrawl, right? It's, it's not something that they can use to verify anything on a ballot. So it's not a myth. It's happening. The myth is that these outdated kind of irrelevant hoops that states just have on the books in some places for no reason other than inertia actually enhance election security. Here's how this looks on the ground in Virginia. I'm Grant Slater, one of the producers for At The Polls. I'm here in a town called Culpeper in Northern Virginia to check in on some of the earliest voting in the country. This is a place where witness signatures were deemed to be a burden during the pandemic. I'm gonna talk with James Holmes, the county election chair, and the person who makes sure the 30,000 or so people who vote here get their ballots counted. Friday was the first day of voting under this new system. 
And we were stunned by the numbers of people who showed up to vote in person. There were over 200 people that came in. <laughs> I know that we have nothing to compare it with because we've never voted this early before. And what are you looking for when you open a mail-in ballot uh, in terms of verification? Uh, the first name, last name, middle name, and then uh, indicating the address, city zip code, and then the voter signs here, mm -hmm. and it's witnessed there. Is the witness signature required this year? So the General Assembly has um, passed legislation specific to the November 3rd general election that, do, that does not require a witness signature. I guess that would be the last question. I mean, you've gone to great lengths today to explain to me the procedures that are involved in securing ballots and verifying voters. How does it make you feel when the President of the United States calls into question the ballots? I'm very offended at that because we here stress the importance of voting and the integrity that we maintain here in Culpeper County is such that is the best bar none. And when you have individuals who are spreading that kind of information, it causes people to panic. Uh, will my ballot be counted? Um, and as long as I'm alive, <laughs> there won't be that issue here. As uh, long as I'm serving, put it that way. It does my heart good to see that the system will work. It's just that we must adhere to the rule of law. That sometimes is lost in all of the confusion, the smoke and mirrors that we are seeing. They are casting about, it's there. Numbers don't lie, <laughs> just like science doesn't lie. <laughs> okay, James, thank you so much for taking some time to thank chat with me. Thank you so much. So what we're hearing from James and Culpepper really echoes what we've heard before. Our election administrators take their work seriously and are quickly adapting to the changes from litigation. Also, they're really living rebuttals to these attacks on our democracy. Now, here's where we get to the toughest part of this show. When we were planning an episode on the courts, we never expected this terrible tragedy. We have some breaking news. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court, has died. Ruth Bader Ginsburg has passed away. Justice Ginsburg told her family that it was her, quote, most fervent wish that she not be replaced until a new president is installed. The job right now is for this well-qualified nominee to be processed in committee and brought to the floor and voted on. The president was elected to do this, and the Senate was elected to confirm th th this nomination. I spoke with Leah Littman, a law professor and co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast. She covers the Supreme Court and the legal culture around it. Leah, tell us a little more about the makeup of the courts and what a vacancy on the Supreme Court could mean if, for some reason, we have some litigation that, after the election, would reach the Supreme Court. Yeah, the president and the Republican Senate have obviously focused a lot on confirming judges. 
we are seeing a rapid effort to pack the courts with what can only be termed very conservative judges and justices. A quarter of all federal circuit court judges in the country were appointed by the president, almost ensuring a conservative tilt for decades. They have confirmed over 250 judges, including many court of appeals judges. So in the event that the court remains an eight-member court, there's some possibility that any decision would leave the court equally divided. A 4-4 court, if they divide, you know, four wanting to affirm, four wanting to reverse, would leave whatever the lower court decision is in place. We know that a lot of these election challenges start in lower courts. So what might election day lawsuits look like? I think this prospect is even more nerve-wracking than what we are observing right now. Um, you know, on election day, we might see lawsuits challenging states enforcing some rules, you know, on in-person voting or, you know, requiring individuals who had registered absentee to go through certain procedures to vote in person. We might see litigation challenging states' efforts to close the polls even when there are lines of people waiting to vote. So that's one variety of litigation that, you know, often happens um, during elections. I think, however, this year it is possible we will see a few others. One is litigation along the lines of what the president and the Republican Party have been previewing, which is efforts to stop counting ballots after Election Day. So what would be the basis for a lawsuit to require some of these states to actually stop counting ballots? I think it would have to be pretty wild. You know, one is it could resemble the theories that the president's campaign are advancing, which is that somehow risks voter fraud. There's no evidence that it would actually do so. But I think that that would be the theory, you know, that they would ground in some principle of integrity of elections, voting rights. And I think the second theory might be, you know, they could try to argue that states are somehow violating state laws regarding voting. And given that each state sets their own rules regarding voting, you know, the argument might vary depending on the state. All of these arguments are going to be pretty out there, extremely outlandish and destabilizing, given that, you know, states routinely count ballots after election day. But those would be the theories. And it's possible that I have not imagined um, others that they might be cooking up. So when we think of the Supreme Court, we don't think of overnight decisions or the Supreme Court really moving fast. But in this instance of post-election litigation, they would need to. Yes. So a federal statute establishes December 12th as the date that each state's chosen electors to the Electoral College meet and give their votes. Now, of course, we don't want the Supreme Court to be in this position of determining how and whether states will count votes. But that December 12th deadline by statute does loom in the backdrop for the court. Although the president and his supporters sometimes say we can't know the outcome of the election until the court certifies it, states are supposed to count the votes that come in in compliance with state law. It's not for the U.S. Supreme Court to certify. And the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court did intervene in the 2000 election and effectively told the state, here's how you can count votes and can't, and thereby decided the outcome of the presidential election, is an aberration and not democratic and not something we should be aspiring to. But I think the risk is that a 6-3 court could embrace even wilder theories 
that either the RNC or different states might offer up for why they can't or shouldn't be counting ballots that come in after Election Day or that aren't counted by the end of Election Day and the risk that those theories might be adopted by a court on which the chief justice is no longer the median justice, but instead you could have a majority of five that is comprised of Neil Gorsuch, Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, Brett Kavanaugh, and whoever the fifth vote is, the president's nominee to replace Justice Ginsburg. So we know that that group of justices is willing to embrace pretty extreme arguments that ignore you know, the facts on the ground and the record as we know it and the prospect that they could do so in ways that affect the integrity of this election is, I think, quite alarming to people. But I, I, I do want to say, like, all of this is very doomsday and can sound extremely depressing. None of that means the outcome is somehow determined or overdetermined. What it does mean, however, is that absolutely everyone needs to vote. They need to ensure that they know their state laws for how to vote. And those laws might change. So you need to stay up on this. I know there's so much going on and it can seem overwhelming. But the only solution here is, again, a landslide election. And that is only possible if Everybody votes. And this is the point that we keep coming back to. Every voter has a tremendous amount of power. If you haven't yet, make your plan to vote now. Know the laws and deadlines in your state. And however you decide to vote, do it early. It's time for some listener questions. First, Cindy. Hi, my name is Cindy and I'm from Boca Raton, Florida. My question for your podcast is... What will the ACLU be doing to gear up for action in the courts? It is my belief that if Donald Trump loses, he's going to take this to the courts and tie it up for months, maybe. So I was just wondering, is the ACLU gearing up to fight those battles in the court. We are preparing around the clock for all things related to this election and to make sure that every eligible voter can cast a ballot that is counted. But now, today, before this election, we're in an all hands on deck moment and we need everyone. You can help by making your plan to vote today if you haven't already. Talk to your friends and family, get them to check their registration and to make their plan to vote. And however you decide to vote, do it early. And you can also sign up to volunteer. Join us at peoplepower.org as we all work together to be heard this election. Today is the day for action and there is no time for lollygagging. Hi, this is longtime ACLU fan Ron in Pleasanton, California. I would like to ask someone, an expert, to help describe the federal role in our election voting rights since we look to the federal government to sustain, enforce, expand our individual rights in many areas against the states who have a tendency to restrict them. In this case, it looks like states' laws are governing those rights, and I just wonder what role the federal government has to ensure it. 
We at the ACLU would also like some stronger federal protections. We worked on and supported the Voting Rights Advancement Act. That would restore the protections of the Voting Rights Act, that landmark 1965 legislation that our Supreme Court gutted in 2013. So this current federal legislation that we support, that would provide essential voting protections, especially for communities of color. So we all must continue to fight until that is not just passed through the House, but until that is enacted into law. And this is also a great time to remind folks to vote their entire ballot, not just the top of the ticket. Most of our voting laws are made at the state level through our state legislatures and our lawmakers in our state houses. So a huge reminder for folks to make sure you're voting for all offices this year, not just the top of the ticket. This is Erlene in Macon, Georgia. I would like to know what we should do or what may be done if on the day of the election there's still a lot of write-in votes to be counted, but Trump announces that he has won and they make a big deal out of it and people begin to think that that's the case. And what, what would you do in a case like that? Just because someone says that they're a winner doesn't mean that they're the winner. And we, the people, we're the ones with the power here. We're the ones with the power right now in this election, and we just need to make sure that we're going to use it by voting. Thank you for these questions. And each week we'll be answering more right here on the podcast. So if you have a question you'd like us to answer, call and leave a message at 212-549-2558 or email podcast at aclu.org. And if you have questions about voting in your state, you can find the information you need at aclu.org slash voter. Thanks so much to Dale Ho and Leah Littman for joining us this week. And until next time, remember, voting is a right, not a privilege.